They see him here. They see him here. And they see him here. We know it because he said it. Jesus said, the world will see him when the world sees us. That's why together we do this. We give so that those who've not yet seen can see. It means something when the world sees how we give. It means something because we do not look the same. It means something because we do not sound the same. It means something because when we give, this is what the world sees. They see the gospel doing what the world cannot. They see the gospel making us one. And so we give. We give so that missionaries can go. We give so that churches can be started, hurts can be healed, and truth can be shared. We give so the world might see Jesus in us. United, United as one. They see him here. They see him here. And they see him here. We know it because he said it. Jesus said, the world will see him when the world sees us. That's why together we do this. We give so that those who've not yet seen can see. It means something when the world sees how we give. It means something because we do not look the same. It means something because we do not sound the same. It means something because when we give, this is what the world sees. They see the gospel doing what the world cannot. They see the gospel making us one. And so, we give. We give so that missionaries can go. We give so that churches can be started, hurts can be healed, and truth can be shared. We give so the world might see Jesus in us. United as one. Well, church family, we're entering into a unique season. We entered into it a little while ago. Uh, we were finishing a series, and we had a couple one-up messages. But uh, during the series, season that we're in, we'll be celebrating something that maybe is unique to you. I'm not sure what your spiritual background is or where you've come from. Uh, but we go into a season, and we celebrate something called the Annie Armstrong Offering. That's what that video is all about. It's a unique and special offering. We only take up at Easter. And to give you context, 
uh, dime for dime, nickel for nickel, penny for penny of the offering doesn't stay here. The uniqueness of this offering that will be taken up through the Easter season is it goes to churches across North America that are doing the work of missions. So um, give you an idea. So how was partly Mardella funded? So we planted Mardella. Part of the funding came from that offering, believe it or not. Um, a recent church planted in Salisbury with a friend of ours named Richard Pope was planted with that offering. Um, a church being planted right now in the city of Pocomoke this year will be funded through that offering. And another church being planted through our denomination in Cambridge is all funded through that offering. So dime for dime, nickel for nickel, it goes to church planters and churches doing the mission work of God. It also goes to disaster relief, right, Don? Yay. So if y'all haven't met Donald, he, he probably still, I, can't, I still can't get used to Donald. I'm trying, man. Don is, I'm going to rename you, man. It's okay. He is the Dom, okay? He's the director of missions. Uh, but he does a lot with disaster relief. Recently, we just had a, a tornado land right here in our area and, and have some damage. Well, funding to help families with that comes from that offering and through other organizations like that. So that's why we, we share that with you. If God leads it uh, on your heart to help with that, just put it in a specific envelope. Make sure you designate it if you do it digitally for the Annie Armstrong offering so that we can make sure it gets to the right place. Well, when we see Annie, it reminds me that we're entering into a season of Easter, right? And so if you're new to the Christian faith or you're checking out the Christian faith, this is the holiest week in the entire Christian counter. Whether you know it or not, I'm going to try to help you understand that. It's not Christmas, okay? It's this Sunday to Easter. And some of you may or may not know, but what is the significance of this day? What's it called? Palm Sunday. And we're going to find out why it's called Palm Sunday in a second, in case that's new to you and you've never been introduced to that idea. But this uh, Palm Sunday marks a seven-day period where we will celebrate and prepare ourselves as Christians for a unique situation that only happens once a year. And unlike Christmas, we do know a lot more of the precision of the date than we do with Christmas. For Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' birthday, which was introduced to us because we don't know his birthday. Easter, we know the dates, and it's a little bit more accurate as far as us understanding this really unique week. So one of the things that we're going to do to help you to do that is we've released a special reading plan. I put it on the Facebook if you're on our app, you'll get a push from the app by the end of the service. It also, uh, I'll send out later in text and email for those of you that use that as technology. Um, and I've already sent it out to everyone I'm connected to on version. Now, why do we do that? Starting today, you will actually go through what's called an Easter reading. And each day will correspond to something that happened in what we call Holy Week. So if you want to be a part of that reading plan, make sure you grab it. You can do it on your own. You can do it with your church. But again, we're going to push that out. So let me describe Holy Week for you and how we're going to celebrate it. And then I'm going to talk to you specifically about Palm Sunday. So it starts with Palm Sunday. We'll introduce, again, what's called the triumphal entry. And um, whether you know it or not, usually Palm Sunday is the traditional ending of Lent. How many of y'all were practicing Lent? You were fasting something. Congratulations, you made it, okay? So now you can decide if you want to continue to fast whatever you were fasting, if that was beneficial to you. Or if, uh, he said no. Didn't make it, okay. So Kevin ended Lent early, okay? But reality is, is you could, this is traditionally the end of Lent. Again, the new reading plan. And then there's something coming up this week that's traditionally known as Maundy Thursday. It's an old-fashioned word that you may not know. But what you need to know about Thursday is this. It's a time of reflection when we think back to the Last Supper and what was happening with Jesus during that Holy Week. So what we'll do uniquely as a church, if you've never been, uh, had a chance to participate with us, is from 6 to 8 on Thursday, we will set up the sanctuary in a very different way. 
There will be a self-guided worship time. You'll come in a certain area. It'll be very quiet. Music will be still. There's no one on the stage. And there'll be seven different stations that you come in. You can come anytime between six and eight. Some people will walk through uh, the worship service in like 15 minutes. Some people take 20, 30 minutes. It just depends on how much time you spend praying and thinking about what this week is about, but you'll actually walk through the entire sanctuary, and it's one of the most moving services that we do, and the only one guiding it is the Holy Spirit. So you come in, and you just spend some time with him, anytime between 6 and 8 Thursday. I'm going to do something unique this Friday. Um, since we have this new piece of tech called Right Now Media, anybody enjoying Right Now Media, which is free? You're all like, yeah, I'm loving it, okay? I'm going to do, for the first time, an online Bible study with you using Right Now Media, and we will be looking at Good Friday on Friday. Uh, we'll be doing that at 7 p.m. I'll send that out to you as well. And we'll be looking at Francis Chan's remarks and comments, which are about 14, 15 minutes long, on Good Friday. And then we'll be have a chance to actually have a conversation online about Good Friday. And then Saturday, we will be doing something else unique. Uh, instead of a Saturday, which is a lot of times known as Silent Saturday, uh, we will actually go to the surrounding houses here around our church. And we'll be putting door hangers on to invite families to the Easter egg hunt that will happen here Sunday. So that's a missional component connected to Easter. If you want to do that, get to know your neighbors, get to know the people around the church. We'll be doing that on Saturday. I'm going to send all this out to you because you're like, I can't remember all that. It's okay. I'm going to send it out by email. It's also a lot of it's in your uh, bulletin. And then Easter Sunday, of course, we'll celebrate normal time, normal service. And it, it always makes me laugh every year. Uh, we had a lot of people will come to me and say, are we doing anything special for Easter? I'm like, yes, we are. We're celebrating a guy coming back from the dead. What are you doing? So it's like they want something, something like really weird. I don't know if they want like pyrotechnics or if they want something like unique, but we're going to celebrate Jesus is coming back from the dead on that day, his resurrection. And we'll also, right after the service, that's when we'll have our Easter egg hunt for families. So today we're going to look at just this idea of Palm Sunday, known as the triumphal entry. If you've got a Bible, you're going to want to open it up. We're going to be in Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 28 through 44. And one of the unique things about the triumphal entry, one of the unique things about Palm Sunday is it's one of the few events that is in all four Gospels. So a lot of times, each of the gospel writers, when they're telling you about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell you unique things that they remember that the Holy Spirit brings to their minds. says, I want you to tell the people about this, about Jesus. This event appears in all four. It's almost like God was screaming at us, don't forget Palm Sunday and the significance of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So Luke 19, 28 through 44, I'm going to be reading out of the NIV, but listen to what this event means and how amazing it is. After Jesus had said this, he'd been teaching the folks, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying, them, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. That's awesome. <laughs> Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And they were, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked him, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. I'm telling you, that's just hilarious. We're going to come back to that. Because I want you to try that someday with your neighbor, okay, with their car. They, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and, 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 and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount 
of olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in a loud voice, in loud voices, for all the miracles that they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, tell them to shut up. That's essentially what that means in our language, okay? I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is known as a triumphal entry. If you'd like to read it in the other gospels, it's amazing to see the similarities and the unique differences between them. What I love about this text, though, is when we look at it, we can draw so much from it from our day to day. There were the masses in this text, and then there were Jesus and his disciples. And what amazes me is if you look through the lens of Jesus and you look through the lens of the masses, you get two very different responses to the triumphal entry. The entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, which was supposed to be the landmark moment for Jerusalem to receive their Messiah, their anointed one, the one they've been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years. Here he comes. And their two responses are very different. So I want to look at is what excited the masses and what excited Jesus and how different are those two things when we put them side by side. What excited the masses were the miracles. Did you catch that? They were excited about the miracles. They noticed the miracles. They brought the miracles up. Uh, the, the author in Luke makes sure that we don't miss it. I love that he says, if, and talk about a miracle. This is a miracle in and of itself, right? If anyone asks you, why are you taking the donkey? What are you supposed to tell them? The Lord, I love that. You guys have got to try this, okay? You got, and you got, to, you got to send me a text when you do it. Like, go to your neighbor and say, hey, can I have the keys to your car? <laughs> why? The Lord needs it. I just want to see if this still works today. Make sure you pray yourself up before you try this. But I'm just, I mean, think about this in modern context. You go into someone's yard, you go into their house, and you're like, and their keys are hanging up. You go in there, you take their keys down, you go out there, you get in the car, they're like, what are you doing? The, no, not Pastor Larry, no. No, because then I'm going to get the police at my house. No, so you say, the Lord needs it. And they just said, okay. I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself. I just think that's kind of wild. But the other part of this is in verse 37, jumping down, you see that all the miracles they had seen is what gave them excitement. When I was looking for a church, I don't know if you've ever been there where you're church shopping. You know, I've been there, been there where you are. If you're looking for a church, you're looking for a place of belonging, you're looking for a place where you think God's calling you to be a part of. And I remember one of my dear brothers in the faith came to me and I said, man, I'm still looking, I'm still praying, I'm still trying to find the right church fit. And he said to me, he says, Look for miracles. I'm like, say what? He's like, look for miracles. His understanding was if there are miracles that are happening in the congregation among the fellowship, then obviously God is in the midst of that church. And I thought, is that what I'm supposed to be looking for? Not to mention, not every miracle is a real miracle, is it? 
Not every miracle is something that God brings. And I think what we're supposed to be looking for, which is what's being missed in this text, especially by the masses, is we're supposed to be looking for the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus, I don't know if you get this, we'll celebrate his resurrection in seven days, but he's still alive. He was raised from the dead. We're going to talk about that in seven days more. But you know, he not only lives at the right hand of the Father in heaven, he has another residing place. Do you know where it is? He lives in his church. He lives in us. And so what I look for when I'm looking for a church is not the miracles, not the style of music, not what they're doing. I'm looking for is the life of Christ present in the people of Christ. That's what we're supposed to be looking for, not these miracles. And that's one of the things that um, really blows me away. One of the books I got to read on vacation, somebody says, how was vacation? I'm like, I only got to finish three books, and I'm almost through this one. And they're like, that's crazy. I'm like, no, not really. I wanted to do more, but it just didn't work out. But one of the books I was reading, actually recommended by your brother, which is a great book, The Torch of the Testimony, right, is a book that talks about over and over and over again the life of Christ, the life of Christ, and how we have tended over time, going all the way back to Jewish times, to extinguish that light when we over-organize it, put greater authority on it, and try to structure the Spirit of God too much among God's people. And that's what's happening here is they're trying to actually fit Jesus already into the specific miracles that they want to see happen. And what I'm looking for is, do I find people who are in love with Jesus? Because among them, Jesus still does miracles. But that's not the focal point, right? I'll give you another example of this helps you on this idea of miracles. Maybe this is something that's messed you up. I was at a church, and a great church, great fellowship, people who were certainly in love with Jesus, wanted the life of Jesus present in their fellowship and their gathering. And there was a woman who had a prenatal tumor. If you've ever heard of something like that, they have a tumor on a child born, before they're born, prenatal. And I remember she came forward one Sunday and we prayed over her. We followed the scriptures. What the scriptures say? If there's anyone among you sick, bring them before the church. Have the elders pray over them and the prayer of faith will be healing. One way or the other, God will heal, right? We prayed, literally, got to see this, got to witness this, got to put my hands on it. She went that week to Johns Hopkins and guess what happened to the tumor? It's gone. Doctors could explain it, don't know what happened. I got to actually witnessed that one. I was like, cool to see God's hand still at work among God's people. Then about four months later, my pastor at the time, he's still my pastor, Bill, his wife came down with cancer. And I'm thinking, man, same process, same people, same faith. She came forward. We laid hands. We anointed oil. We prayed the prayer of faith, and she went home to be with Jesus about six months later. Now, why does that happen? Because I don't know if you figure this out, but we don't get to control the miracles. You're not God. I'm not God. We don't get to tell God to be God. Have you figured that out yet? Like, if you get to tell God to be God, you can command God and make God do what you want to think God's supposed to do, then he's no longer God. You are. That's right. You are. So, so the reality is, is you don't seek the miracle. You seek the miracle giver by faith. And by the way, he still wants to hear from you. He wants you to ask for the miracle, to pray for the miracle, but he wants you to trust him with the results of that. And that's something that the masses don't understand. They're too excited about the miracle, they miss the person. Happens all the time. The second thing that excited the masses is they love heroes. The masses love heroes. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
you understand that they were ready to put Jesus on the pedestal and make him the hero of the day. And this is not a new problem, is it? We as a culture do this. It goes all the way back. Anybody ever heard of Achilles? Anybody heard of Achilles' heel? Okay. So this Greek hero, mythological hero, every hero goes back, has like, they've got all these cool powers, but they've always got the weakness, right? They've got the kryptonite somewhere. Speaking of kryptonite, Superman, Invented in the 30s, right? We're superhero movies. How many of y'all love Marvel movies? Come on. Marvel movies are rocking, right? As a comic book kid, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. You know, they finally brought out stuff that I actually like reading when I was a kid. But the reality is, is what they're tapping into is our love of heroes. In fact, our love of heroes, our worship of heroes, and our, our addiction to the hero mentality is one of the reasons we have so many problems now in our nation. I don't know if you figured that out yet. We don't look for people of character. We don't look for people of faith. We don't look for people that have a desire to only serve and love the people that they have been called and elected to serve. What we have are people that love their own agenda, their own ego. They're in love with themselves or their party or whatever it is. And we looked at that and because they have a position of power, we go, man, we're impressed with that. We love that. We'll elect that all day long, won't we? And the reality is that's one of the problems is we look for the wrong thing. Jesus wasn't looking for them to look to him as a hero. He was wanting them to look to him as a savior in love with them who would humbly lay down his life for them. And they couldn't see that because they were too busy putting him on their political pedestal at the time, wanting him to fix the big ailments of their day. I don't know if you figure this out yet, but when the politicians say to you, I understand your pain, they don't, okay? And they don't know what it's like to live the way that you live. And we shouldn't look there. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in that area, okay? But you shouldn't look there for solutions. You should look to your faith and to Jesus, and when that happens, you aren't let down. The third thing the masses looked for and loved was conflict. Man, they loved conflict. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teach you, rebuke your disciples. They, they've been in conflict with Jesus since the moment he came on the scene. He said, I tell you, and he replied, even if they are quiet, what will happen? The stones will cry out, right? So they were wanting to drum up the conflict. There is something, again, inside of us. I don't know what it is. But we love the drama, don't we? We love the conflict. My grandmother, all the way into her 80s, still watched her soaps every afternoon. Did anybody else have a grandma like this? And you weren't allowed to interrupt it, were you? Because grandma's a place you go, right? You go there, you're going to get good cooking, okay? Peas and dumplings, you're going to get cookies, you're going to get homemade stuff. She'll even stop what she's doing and make you stuff, right? That's, that's the beauty of going to grandma's house. But you don't interrupt grandma during... Un stories, yeah, the soaps. Like that was like, un you couldn't do that because you were messing with the drama of the day. And it blew me away. There's just something about that that stirs us up. We love great conflict. Think about the shows that have been epic shows in our lifetime, right? Survivor. Yeah, holy cow, right? Some of these reality shows, you look at them like, that does not look like the reality of my life at all, Right? 
but it's the drama, the tension. What I love when they talk to the guy who actually was the producer of Survivor is when they're interviewing people for this show, he's looking to create specific conflict. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna get that one, and I'm gonna get that one, I'm gonna put them on the same team, right? Because then it's gonna blow them up. Like, it's just gonna happen. They're looking to create conflict, and we eat it up. The news that we watch, I don't know if you've realized this, but the news is not about the news anymore, is it? And and some of you are like, I'm biased on this, and I watch this, and I like this one. I don't know if you figure this out. They're all biased, right? Here's the reality of the news today. Hope you figure this out. They know who their audience is, and they can spoon feed you what they think will invigorate you and get you excited by getting you wound up on the drama that will mess you up. And each news agency knows who their, who their target is, and they specifically target them. It's funny. One of the things I fasted during Lent was the news. I have never been more at peace in my life. I'm as ignorant as it gets, okay? But I am at peace. I had no idea how much watching the morning news was getting me in a frazzle. And when I just did my devotion, and I did my prayer time, and Susan and I prayed together, man, my week has been so much more peaceful. And then I'll just kind of flip through and go, yep, they're still stupid. Yep, they're still stupid. Yep, they're still trying to kill somebody. Like, I go through like, yeah. It's funny when you just look at the headlines, how much you're like, yep, same, 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 same. Okay, and move on. But the reality is, is conflict is something inside of us that feeds something very negative. And that's what was happening in that moment. The masses wanted the conflict. They couldn't wait to see how Jesus and the Pharisees would lock horns again and how it would go down, and they were just egging him on. But what's interesting to me is how different Jesus is. Let's look at him for a second. What excited Jesus? Well, were miracles excited the masses, it was humility that excites Jesus. It's almost the opposite in a way. It's humility. I love that the, this um, part that's being quoted here comes out of the Old Testament. So what Luke and the other gospel writers were collecting for you was an actual prophetic moment, a prophecy that was actually taking place in that moment. And it's from Zechariah 9.9, if you want to write it off to the side in Luke. Listen to what Zechariah 9.9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, that's Israel. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In other words, Zechariah was saying, your king will come to you with humility, with a love and just a respect for the people. You know, miracles versus humility are two very different things. In a miracle, I demand from God what I want. With humility, I approach God and ask what he wants. Very different approaches. And Jesus, all through this week, you're going to notice, continues in his prayer life to say to God, what is it you want? How can I serve you? Did you know the word humility is such an interesting word? We get the word human from humility. We also, how many of y'all are gardeners? Any gardeners in the house? Anybody got something called a humus pile? Humus pile, humus pile. Some people repronounce it. What is it? You know what it is, John? You take all the junk, all the garbage, all the crap you wouldn't eat, you chunk it in a big old pile and you let it rot and what happens? It turns into rich soil. You know that that's the very idea that's used in creation when it said that Adam was made from the... That's why we use the word human. Humility comes from the same root. That it's only dirt that we've been made from. And the reality is, is it's only because of the breath of God that we have life. And so that's this idea of humility. And Jesus loves humility. 
The whole time he's on earth, even when people try to exalt him, he pointed to the Father. He pointed to his plan. He pointed to the mission. He didn't make it about him, even though he could, because if you figure this out, you had Jesus as God in the flesh. But he pointed to him. In fact, when he was asked to give a miracle, he was demanded a miracle. Does anybody know what miracle he said he would give? Only the sign of? Which is essentially that he would be in the grave for three days in the belly of the whale. So Jesus was saying, look forward to my resurrection. The fact that I'll be dead for three days and you've got to figure this out and pray through it. This Jesus has this humility. Even when he could make it about him, he didn't. There's a modern song. We sang some good songs this morning, but there's a modern song. Any Casting Crowns fans in the house? Love Casting Crowns? Yeah. There's a song called Only Jesus. Is anybody familiar with this song? This captures the heart of this Christian life and captures the heart, I think, of humility that we need to hear today. Let me read just some of the lyrics for you. He says, make it count, leave a mark, build a name for yourself. Dream your dreams, chase your heart above all else. Make a name the world remembers, but all an empty world can sell is empty dreams. I got lost in the light when I was up, when it was up to me to make a name the world remembers, but Jesus is the only name to remember. And then the chorus is really what gets you. He says, and I don't want to leave a legacy. I don't care if they remember me, only Jesus. That's, that's the humility that's at the heart of what Christ was looking for, what excites him. Um, there was a gentleman by the name of D.L. Moody. Anybody ever heard of D.L. Moody? Uh, D.L. Moody was a shoe salesman. Um, he was a shoe salesman up in the area of Chicago. Uh, came from a very poor family. And uh, D.L. Moody had an encounter one day, and he was introduced to the living Jesus. A friend of his, a Sunday school teacher, came and uh, introduced him and told him that Jesus had died for his sins and D.L. Moody put all of his hope and his trust in Christ and he's like, but I'm a nobody. I don't know what to do. I just know I love Jesus. And so he starts attending this local church and he noticed that everybody had their own Sunday school. <laughs> everybody. They had rooms everywhere. And D.L. Moody said, can I have a Sunday school? They're like, yep, go get your own disciples, your own students. You can have a Sunday school. So D.L. Moody walked out in the street and he started pulling off the hookers. He started pulling out the drunks. He started pulling, he pulled out every single person nobody wanted to talk to. He said, come on in and be a part of my Sunday school. And so he brought him into the Sunday school. He says, I don't know a lot, but I know Jesus has changed my life. And he starts to share about Jesus. He just starts sharing everywhere he goes. One of the things I love about D.L. Moody is as he went further in his faith, he had this thing. I don't know if I could do this. He said he would not go to sleep until he could at least lead at least one person to Jesus a day, every day of his life. He would roam the streets of Chicago to share about Jesus, not about himself. He wasn't trying to build his little kingdom, his own little agenda. He just wanted to build Jesus's. He went and visited the famous preachers of his day in England. He says, I don't know how to do this. I just know I'm in love with Jesus, and I want other people to know him. And uh, a very famous preacher out of our own denomination said to him, Dale Moody, Moody, God's not looking for a great man. God's just looking for men that are so humble he can do whatever he wants through their life. And Moody said, I can be that guy. And, I mean, he radically changed that whole area because of his humility. Jesus is still looking for that kind of humility where it's not about us and not about our kingdom or our agenda, but all about his. And when he finds that, there's new birth and excitement. There's another triumphal entry. 
where we look for heroes, Jesus was focused on destiny. We look to heroes trying to find them. Jesus was looking toward destiny. He was looking toward what we would call the providence or the hand of God. I love it in verse 37 again. It says, when he came near to the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. But what you may not know, you have to read the text a little bit closer, is when he went down to that Mount of Olives, we're told no less than two times in the scriptures that he was going to pass another very famous place, that he would pass a place called Gethsemane, which is another garden, which is where Jesus would have the darkness of his soul revealed in that moment, where he would pray about the crucifixion that was coming his way. And as I was thinking about this, I went ahead and pulled up my map, and I realized it's only 200 yards. It's about 200 yards from where Jesus comes down the Mount of Olives to where Gethsemane is. And I wonder if he was thinking about it, that as he went through the Holy Week and he was trying to connect with the people, he's trying to share the good news of who God is, he's trying to share about the mission of God, and he's looking around, he's like, in a few days I'm going to be there. In a few days I'm going to spend the Last Supper with my disciples. In a few days I'm going to hang on a cross. In a few days... I'm going to lay in a tomb and experience the fullness of death and even the fullness of hell. That he's thinking through all of those things that are going to transpire during that week, even as he's walking through and talking to people. I know he had some knowledge of it because Luke 9, 51 tells us this. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He knew by the Spirit of God and the command of God that he was born to die. And he knew that that moment was approaching. And I think about, gosh, what could have been going through his mind? He had a sense of destiny, that this is what's before me. We have a sense of entitlement, what's owed to me. And it's so different. And when we begin to get a sense of destiny that God is calling you, to actually take up your cross, and then you see what Jesus did to take up his cross, then you really get a picture of what destiny's like. That God may be calling you into a moment of suffering. That God could actually call you through a moment of pain, through hurt, anguish, loneliness. But that when he calls you to it, he brings you through it, doesn't he? And it's through it that your character is developed, and you really understand what it means to be a Christian. That's this idea of destiny. And I wonder, as you approach this Easter, do you have a sense of destiny? Do you have a sense of who God's calling you to love, to cherish, to invite, to share your story with, to share the good news with, to serve and love, to do something for them with no expectation in return, that you know something that they don't know yet, that while this is a dark season and a dark time, in less than a week, Jesus will be raised from the dead. That even though you go through this difficult season, there's always a moment of resurrection, but you can't get to resurrection without death and a burial. It's very difficult, but that sense of destiny is what Jesus held on to. It's also why conflict wasn't the thing that drove him. What was at the heart of that destiny was he had a love for the lost and the hurting. That's the other thing that excited Jesus. The lost and the hurting. 
Everywhere he went, he found them, he located them, and he put his investment in them. I love it. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. There's only a couple times we see Jesus weeping in Scripture. This is one of them. He was looking at a city that was supposed to want his coming, that was supposed to embrace him as the one that would save them. And in less than seven days, the crowd that was yelling, Hosanna, which means save us, is going to yell, crucify him. That, that's some deep hurt. That's some deep-seated rejection. And as Jesus does that, I, I look at that, I'm like, gosh, I, I don't know how I would respond to something like that. I don't know if you've been there, but when people hurt you or wound you, what's our first reaction? I'll either not get, let them do it again, or I'll give it back to them. But here in Christ, we have this love of the lost and the hurting. He's expecting lost people to act like lost people. He's expecting hurt people to act like hurt people. And even though it's going to hurt him and wound him, he puts his very life down. And in doing that, he shows us what real love looks like. And it shows us what excites him, even though it's going to hurt him. That's pretty tough stuff. That's how we prepare our hearts, though, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. We get ready for that. So I want you to think about, is there someone in your life right now that has hurt you, wounded you, is far from God, does not have a relationship with Jesus, who when you think of them, they are the last person you would invite out to dinner, okay? That's the person, okay? They're the last person. And you're like, but God loves them. God loves that person. He loves them so much that he's going to let Jesus this week die for them that they might experience real life in Jesus' resurrection. That's what Palm Sunday to Easter is about. And he wants to invite us into that journey. So think about the things that we're doing this week. This, maybe God's telling you something different. I'm just telling you what we're doing to try to give you an opportunity to engage with people that are around you. What about people who have never had an encounter during Holy Week? Maybe God's calling you to share your story with them. To invite them to dinner, invite them to lunch, invite them to breakfast, invite them to coffee. And you say, I don't know if you know this, but God loves you passionately. I just want to share with you how he loves me and what he did for me. And you share your story of how Christ saved you through what he did on the cross. Maybe it's a family member, a coworker. Maybe it's someone that you've held bitterness toward and you need to forgive them or ask for forgiveness. Maybe one of the ways that you'll prepare your heart is through that Monday Thursday service where you just get real and quiet before God. It is an amazing Thing, to be undone before Jesus in stillness and quietness. And when he deals with us, he gets our heart ready. Maybe for you, it's, again, just hanging out and talking about what Good Friday really is. Maybe it's helping us to reach out to the neighbors around this community that don't yet know Jesus by inviting them to something as simple as an Easter egg on a Saturday. Maybe it's grabbing an Easter invite card on your way out. This is something simple as a tool to say, here, would you like to come to service with me on Easter? Have your kids do an Easter egg hunt and hang out with me. There's something I guarantee you that God is going to do in your life this week if you will open yourself up and that his great coming is not just something in history, but it's something that happens in your heart. So my one last question for you is this. Which will excite you this week? Which will excite you this week during Holy Week? Is it what excited the masses? Or is it what excited Jesus? You can break those down again. Are you excited about just the miraculous? Or are you excited about humility? Are you excited about heroes around you or the destiny that God's placed before you? Are you excited about conflict in the culture we live in 
Or does your heart beat for the lost and the hurting? These are the things that we've got to think through as we get ready to approach the holiest week of the Christian calendar. And I want to pray for you to help you prepare your heart. Uh, for those of you who have never started a relationship with Jesus, I want to give you a chance right now in the service to do that. For those of you that have been struggling lately, I want to give you a chance to renew that faith so you can enter this week in a new way and with a new vision. I'm ask Chris if he come up and he's like, I knew you were going to do that. And just give us some stillness on the cool things he does with keys. And, uh, and then after we prepare our hearts through the gospel, the good news, then we're going to celebrate what Jesus is going to do for us this week. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what's recorded in the scriptures, that Jesus had a triumphal entry, and that even though a few days later he would go through the crucifixion, we also know he was triumphant, because he triumphed over sin. And Father, I don't know about everyone in this room, but I know that sin still has its way sometimes in my life, whether it's in my thoughts, my actions, or how other people treat me, or how I treat other people, or even how sometimes I treat you, Lord treat you sometimes as a vending machine or sometimes there's great contempt instead of treating you with all respect. And Father, we know that Christ came to repair all of that because he knew that we could not do it. So Father, for me and for those that have a desire to draw closer to you, this morning, we admit something that's hard to admit, that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We already have too many heroes in the world. But there's only one Savior. And Father, the sins that we've committed, we confess those to you. We lay them before your feet with humility, knowing that you receive them not as an angry God, but as a gracious God. We thank you that Christ paid for our specific sins, past, present, and future glory. When he gave his life up on the cross, he paid for our sins. And it's because of his payment that we are free. We thank you for what Christ has done for us. We thank you for how he continues to intercede for us, even now in heaven. That we would be the people that he's called us to be. That we would have a sense of destiny for the life that he's calling us into. Because his plan is better than ours, Lord. We commit our lives fresh to you, laying down the control of our lives, asking you to have control. Lord, it's our desire to put you in the place that Jerusalem wouldn't put you as the true king of our life, the Lord of everything. It's because of our faith in Christ alone and the life that he chooses for us that we know that we're not only saved for eternity, that we might have life abundantly now. And all those who believe that said,